Okay, well, 2020, ladies, it has been a stormy, stormy year for many of us. Some of us have been impacted by weather storms, specifically Hurricane Laura. I, I won't even begin to tell you how much fun my family had with that. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly as, as that storm rolled through, there's nothing funny about a, a storm that's so severe that 64 people would die and almost $9 billion in damage would result. We may not have been personally impacted by Hurricane Laurie here in northwest Arkansas, but we've certainly all been impacted to some degree by the storm that we call COVID-19 during 2020. Some of us have been devastated. In fact, People have been impacted financially with unemployment or losing their businesses. I heard a report this week that, that divorce filings have, have skyrocketed, that relationships have fallen apart during COVID. So some have, have certainly been devastated on many fronts, not just economic and financial, but um, others have also been impacted even if it's just been inconvenienced. Certainly all of us would say, even if COVID hasn't devastated us, it has certainly inconvenienced us to some degree. The storms that uh, you have faced in 2020 in your life um, and that you're even facing right now may not be weather related. They may be relational. They may be financial. They may be physical or, or mental or emotional, or they may be something else something so private that you can't even share that with a, a personal prayer request in, in a group like this. But one thing is certain, we know this, that life is going to bring some storms into our lives. Sometimes, ladies, the rain is going to fall on your head. And if you've lived more than a pair of minutes on this planet, you know this. You know that life is not everyday sunshine and roses. So how do you survive the storm? Is there anything to be learned in the storm or from the storm? How have the storms that you've endured as you think back over your life, how have they changed you? Have they made you bitter? Have they made you better? Have they made you more grateful to God? Have they led you to a place of going through a season of being angry with God? Have they drawn you closer to God? Or have they pushed you away from him? Storms, whether they're literal storms or otherwise, are not new to our modern-day world. In fact, in this painting by Rembrandt, it's called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, we see depicted the first-century storm that was recorded in all three synoptic gospels. The scripture tells us that the storm was raging, the disciples were panicking, and what was Jesus doing? Many of you know he was sleeping. Jesus was sleeping as the storm was raging. And they awakened him. And with his words, he commanded that storm to stop. Amen. He rebuked the wind and the rain, and he demonstrated his power over even nature as he commanded that storm to stop. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said this, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Jesus rebuked the disciples after calming the storm for their lack of faith. While he was sleeping, they were terrified in the storm. Now, ladies, remember, these were fishermen. These were seasoned veteran fishermen. Storms would have been a part of life for them. So I think that tells us that this was an unusually powerful, violent storm if it would frighten even seasoned fishermen. The scripture describes it in my translation as a furious storm. The King James Version calls it a tempest, which uh, by definition means a violent, windy storm. And like those tough fishermen, you know, we may be women who weather some storms. We may be women who have learned to 
woman up and toughen up and just deal with it. But you know, even just like there's that one storm that's going to get a seasoned fisherman, there are going to be storms that come raging into our lives that may threaten to level us as well. The disciples most likely were not expecting this storm. It caught them off guard. And you know, storms are like that in our lives too, especially the ones that aren't weather-related, where we don't have that Doppler weather and the weatherman to let us know it's coming. Sometimes the storms that impact us catch us off guard. One thing we know about living in Tornado Alley or, or if you've ever lived along the eastern seaboard or along the Gulf Coast, you don't wait until that tornado's coming or that hur hurricane is about to land. You don't wait until it's upon you to get ready for it. It's what you do before the storm that has us ready to ride it out in faith and not fear. We never know when that furious storm may rear up in our lives, frightening us not only because of its intensity and its damage potential, but also because it's so often unexpected. Storms, also, do you ever notice, they never seem to come at a convenient time. If we knew a crisis was scheduled for Tuesday, really now, would we even get out of bed on Tuesday? We might just stay in bed with the covers pulled up and the blinds drawn. But we get ready for that storm that may come on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday by growing our faith. Remember, that's what Jesus rebuked the disciples for. You have little faith. While we don't know when the storm is coming, we know a storm is possible. In fact, we know a storm is likely. Jesus gave us a heads up that in this world you will have trouble. And we prepare for storms to some degree. We all do. It's why we buy insurance. It's why we carry an umbrella. It's why we keep a flashlight in our nightstand. It's why there's water bottles in our, our basement or our tornado closet or our, our, our safe place. It's the reason we lock our doors when we go to bed at night, and, and some of us even have a security system. We, we are ready for many physical storms, but what about those spiritual storms, those relationship storms? How do you prepare for those? Well, ladies, that's where we need the scripture, to grow our faith, to strengthen our dependence upon God, and to trust him, come what may. I love what Rakshak and Ben said about God. You probably know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their stories found over in the Old Testament book of Daniel. When they were facing death, not by water, but by fire, they were about to be hurled into a blazing furnace by a wicked king, but they stood there in faith, and they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, who would send them there, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's over in Daniel chapter 3. Now, ladies, that's faith. Even if you don't do what I want you to do, God, even if God doesn't behave in the way and perform like I want him to, I have faith in God. I'm going to continue to believe God. I'm going to continue to trust God. Now, that's confidence in, in, that God can and trusting in his plan and declaring who he is even if he doesn't do what I want him to do. Amen. I will choose to serve and worship him. It's the faith that declares I will not be shaken, that my commitment to, my commitment to God is not dependent upon him doing what I want, when I want, and in the way I want. And ladies, that's the kind of faith that I aspire to have and I believe you do as well. I want to ask you, what kind of furious storm is raging in your life? As you think in, in your heart and your mind, you may know immediately what that challenge is. And what is that storm 
revealing about your faith. Because here's what I know. Hard times are heart revealers. When the pressure gets intense, when the heat gets turned up, that's what's in our hearts bubbles up to the surface. And as we walk in fear and as we trust in God, that walk in faith and not fear, that fear is going to evaporate. Faith is going to be one of the topics that we cover most thoroughly in the book of Romans. We're going to find that we can declare, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will trust God and I will worship him come what may. As we study through Romans and we study this topic of faith, we're going to learn, I think, more and more about growing our faith and what that means. And in fact, the word faith is even found in our key passage for the book of Romans. In Romans 1.17, it talks about the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Righteousness by faith. We're going to unpack Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 in depth and very thoroughly next week in Lesson 1. But right now I just wanted to highlight this and its connection to faith, righteousness by faith in our introduction. Righteousness is the key word in Romans. And here we see that righteousness is actually defined by faith. It comes from faith and it begins and ends in faith. Righteousness by faith, the theme of Romans. Romans has changed the lives of theologians and lay people alike down through the centuries. As I have read commentary after commentary, the, the testimony about Romans is incredible. I only wish we had time to read biographies of, of St. Augustine and John Stott and, and John Wesley and certainly Martin Luther and many, many others. And you know what? When we're finished with this, we can add our name to that list as well. Because I believe that Romans is going to change us as well when we're finished. So we might ask, well, where does faith come from? You might ask that question. If we're supposed to have faith, and faith comes from, where does that faith come from? Well, Romans 10, 17 tells us that consequently faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. It's the word of God that brings us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus alone can save us. And then the word of God continues to bring growth after we are saved. Faith is believing God and then acting upon that belief. Righteousness by faith, the theme of Romans. And so you want to be ready to weather whatever storm hits you unexpectedly. You wake up on Tuesday and there's a storm you didn't see coming. You want to be ready for it. You grow your faith. And if you want to grow your faith, you get into the Word of God. And I believe that's why you're here, because you want to grow in the Word. You want to grow your faith. We must know what we believe, and then knowing what we believe, it will very naturally flow out of us and change the way we live. And I believe that that message is never more important in our entire lives than perhaps it is today in 2020. For ourselves, for our family, for our community, our country, and for our culture. We as women of God need to know what we believe and be able to share that and declare that and live that out in the world that is changing so dramatically all around us. We must know what we believe, and then knowing what we believe, it needs to naturally change how we live. Faith is what saves us, and faith is what changes how, how we live. So here's our truth. And for those of you that are new to our study every week, we'll have a woman of God truth where I just try to come up with one statement that summarizes that one takeaway for the week. And so here's our truth for this week. The woman of God is saved by faith and she lives by faith. 
So as we consider this truth in connection with Romans 10, 17 that we just read, we see the importance of the word of God to us as women of God. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. If we are to grow our faith, it is vital that we have the word of God. Today we're going to look at some general overall information about Romans just as an overall introduction and then I'm going to wrap up with a few items to consider for you to keep in mind as you study the Word of God. So first let's just look at some general information about Romans. First of all, who do we have to thank for Romans? Well first of all Gaius and that may be a name that is new to you. Um, if, if any of you are expecting maybe that's a name you want to consider for a little a baby, little Gaius. So Gaius is identified in Romans as Paul's host. Paul is writing this book from Corinth where he's wrapping up his third missionary journey. And he wants to go to Rome, but he's been collecting an offering for the believers in Jerusalem that are impoverished. And he's going to head back to to, uh, Jerusalem first and then hopefully get on to Rome. So he's wrapping up his third missionary journey. And Gaius is his host. So apparently Gaius has a home that can accommodate having a house guest for an ongoing period of time. I love that that is recorded here. I love that that Gaius wasn't called to write Romans. He wasn't called to to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. But apparently he's a godly man and he offered up what he had. He made his home available. He he offered a a place for, for Paul to stay. So what do we have that even if we're not called to be a missionary or to preach or to teach or whatever... How could God use your kitchen table or, or, or your crock pot or, or your guest bedroom, your, your back porch, your screened-in porch? I just love the way that we see in Scripture these characters that come in and are mentioned once and how they're using what they have to serve the kingdom. Next, we see Tertius. What Tertius sort of steps into the letter in Romans 16.22 where he identifies himself as the one who's writing down the letter. He was sort of Paul's secretary. Paul impresses me as the kind of guy who thinks quick and talks quick and has a lot to say, and he couldn't get it all written down. So maybe Tertius has learned some shorthand, but he's sort of the scribe recording all this for Paul. And certainly it's such a help and a blessing. I I have some wonderful blessings of women that take care of of some clerical stuff for me and and the details of of the administrative stuff and running errands. And so I feel like I have some Tertius-type women in my life, and I'm so grateful for them and who they are. And then Phoebe. So there's a woman on the list. Scholars tell us that Phoebe was most likely the one that was entrusted with carrying that letter from Corinth to Rome to deliver it to the people there. What an important privilege. And it it made me think about when Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance was to a woman, and he said to Mary, go and tell. She was given a message. In a culture where women were little more than chattel, that they were honored in the church. They were given an important task. And certainly... The Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires all Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So not just Romans, but all of Scripture is given by God, inspired by the Spirit. And then, of course, Paul. We have to study a little bit about Paul and know who he was, the author of Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when we think about who Paul was, he was an Old Testament scholar, He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee among Pharisees, because he had been trained by Gamaliel. 
He was a student. He was a religious zealot. Um, he would later become a missionary and a church planter. He was a Roman citizen. He was a tent maker. Um, lots of things that could be said about Paul. Lots of ways that he could introduce himself. His name was formerly Saul. And that's where we need to camp out before we go forward. We need to be, re remind ourselves who Saul was in order to appreciate who Paul is. In Acts 22.3, he said this about himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in the city. I studied under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as you are today. So he, he just freely admits who he was. Formerly Saul. Well, here's the part about Saul that I want you to keep in mind. He was so zealous for God that he was determined to wipe out this, this Christian heretic group, this heresy that was rising up, talking about this Jesus. He felt like these people were messing with the truth of who God was. In Acts 7, 54 to 56, it records the stoning of Stephen. Stephen had stood up, and he's preaching this powerful sermon about who God is, and he's talking to the Pharisees, and they've had enough of it. And I just want to read you these few scriptures. Saul, formerly Paul, is standing there watching and here's what happens if we could go back to that scene. It says that when the members of the Sanhedrin, this is, these are the, the religious leaders of the day that are listening to Stephen. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now these are supposed to be the godly leaders and they're gnashing their teeth at, at, at uh, Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, and I just see his face just probably full of the glory of the Lord, full of joy. And he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then their scripture says, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. So these, again, these religious godly men who have been gnashing their teeth, now they're doing this. No, 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 no. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the truth. They're covering their ears. They're yelling. They're rushing at him. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was the coat holder. He stood by watching while they were stoning him, it says, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And then it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. I'm sure he was just thinking good. There's another heretic silenced, eliminated. For, for the glory of God, he told himself. What an incredible story. We can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to be encircled by a group of angry, supposedly godly leaders who pick up rocks and pelt you with them until you die and to be worshiping God to the very end. And Saul there giving approval. He was bent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Acts 8.3, the very next chapter, it says that Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison, house to house. This is a methodical man. This is a meticulous man and an orderly man. We're going to see that facet of his personality play out now for the glory of God as we go through Romans. And very systematically and very meticulously, he presents the truth of the gospel. But he wanted to wipe out Christians. Verses 9, 1, and 2, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. 
so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what they called the followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we see Paul's personality here, this religious zealot, passionate, determined. He was committed to the death of believers, but of course he was dead wrong. But all those facets of his personality, his passion and zeal, God is going to redirect and rechannel that. Because what's going to happen is he's armed with his papers and heading to Damascus. God stops him on that road on the way to Damascus. God blinded him, and this zealous man who thought that he was serving God found out that he was actually persecuting God and destroying the people of God. So I want to ask you to maybe consider, if you've got time, go back this, re this week and read Acts 7 and 8 and 9 and, and get familiar with Saul so that you can more fully appreciate Paul and who he is today. Celebrate the faith of Ananias who came to Saul in obedience to God. What an incredible man he was. And how amazing to think that we'll, we'll be able to meet Ananias and Gaius and Phoebe and Paul in heaven. These are real people, ladies. They're real people that we will get to meet and have all the time in the world to sit and visit with them without any mask being on our face when we talk to them, right? We have to know a little bit about Saul's story to appreciate Paul's story. God not only changed his name, he changed his life. Now, in the first century, they were much more logical in the way they wrote letters. When you and I get a letter and it says, Dear Laura or Dear Whatever, we skip down to the bottom to see who wrote it, who is it from. But in the first century, they just put who it was from at the beginning. It makes a whole lot more sense. It's much more logical. So when Paul introduced himself in Romans 1.1, it's interesting to see how he chose to introduce himself, because there's lots of things he could have said, but he chose instead three things to say. He identified himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave, essentially, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I'm a servant, I'm an apostle, I'm set apart. Because you see, post-Damascus Road, all that passion and zeal and determination, it's still there but now it's all devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, it truly was all about Jesus. As he introduces Jesus, and he introduces himself at the very beginning of this letter, the name Jesus, either through pronoun or direct reference, is referenced eight times in the first six verses of his introduction. Clearly for Paul, it's all about Jesus. And during the course of your life, you've probably had at least one man say to you, oh, it's not you, it's me. Well, for Paul, he would boldly declare, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so may, may we become women who declare the same. When he mentions Jesus in verses 3 and 4, I love what he says. And, and so don't miss this. He, he talks about Jesus being both human and both divine. In verse 3, he says, regarding the son who was as to his earthly life a descendant of David, but then he says in verse 4, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So we see here that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Paul hits that right from the very beginning. Only Jesus is both. And he had to be for the righteous requirements of the law to be satisfied. Because man sinned, man must make payment for the sin. But only God was without sin and an acceptable sacrifice. <laughs> I heard a godly teacher once describe it this way. God can, but should not, 
Man should, but cannot. And so therefore, only a God-man, the one who was birth, who was both, would satisfy the righteous requirements of the law, this God-man, Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, ladies, you and I can be saved by faith. Because of Jesus, we are called to the obedience that comes from faith. Romans Romans 1.5 says this, Through him we received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Tim Keller calls this faith-fueled obedience. Does our faith fuel obedience in our lives? Obedience should flow naturally from our faith. It's not a condition for it. We don't obey to be saved, but we obey because we are saved. My husband used to describe it this way. He would say, you don't bark to become a dog. You bark because you are a dog. You know, you you can bark all day long and you will never be transformed into a dog. But if you are a dog, you're going to bark. And you can do good works all day long and they will never make you a, a Christian. But if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, there should naturally be this desire to obey God because we love him. Faith, obedience, grace, peace, all these are going to be addressed in the book of Romans. Some might call Romans Christianity 101. Many scholars have offered lots of very in-depth outlines to this amazing book. I'm going to give you a very short and very concise one that I've just sort of put together from my initial study. Chapters 1 to 11, we're going to look at biblical doctrine. Paul's going to lay out very systematically and meticulously what we should believe. And the beginning in chapter 12, we're going to shift and and have some practical application. And there, we're going to learn how we should behave as a result of our faith. Now again, Paul's writing writing from Corinth. He's wrapping up that third missionary journey. He just can't wait to get to Rome. And so he's sending this letter out ahead. He wants to meet his brothers and sisters there. He's anxious to connect with them, but he's sending this letter on ahead of his visit. In fact, I'm wondering if he has some inkling that something could happen to him that might prohibit him from getting to Rome, and so he wants to get there. He shares a couple of reasons for his visit. Mutual encouragement and a harvest among them. And as I read that in those couple of verses during the intro, it occurred to me that's really what the church is about all these years later. Mutual encouragement is discipleship, spurring one another on. And that's what we do as we come together as women of God or even in our churches and our small groups. And then finding that harvest, well, that's, a, that's evangelism. And so discipleship and evangelism is kind of the focus there. I I knew I wouldn't have time to cover all of this, so there's an intro to the intro video that you can find on the YouTube channel that, that covers that idea of mutual encouragement and how important it is, especially during the times that we find ourselves in today with the physical distancing that's required, but it shouldn't keep us from this this from socially connecting and spiritually connecting connecting to spur one another on. And I hope that's this discipleship and evangelism is certainly what happens in our study together. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at some specific things to keep in mind as as we launch our study of Romans. These some of these ideas may be new, little tips or ideas, but if nothing else, even if it's not new, it's always good to review. I hope at least one of them spurs you on or gives you some practical ideas as we begin. In fact, I hope that when we're finished, there's 10 things, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but I hope you'll be able to pick one that you'll share with your group next week. This is the thing that challenged me. This is, this is the one tip that I'm going to take to heart and really pray about. So here we go. Number one, decide to make it a priority. 
you are here today, even listening to this teaching, if you're online, it means that there's a desire in your heart and a desire in your mind to grow your faith. So decide to continue. Decide to make that commitment. Decide to finish what you start. Choose to complete what you are beginning and make it a priority. Because here's the thing, it's going to be inconvenient at times. There's going to be distractions. Someone's going to become sick. You're going to become sick. Something is going to happen. We women, though, are nothing if not tenacious. We seem to have a way of doing or getting what we want. If there's some 30% off coupon that we want to use and we got to get to Fayetteville to do it, we're going to figure out some way that week before that coupon expires to get over there and get what we want, right? So you just decide that that's what you want and you make it a priority. Decide now where that time is going to come from. And you really have to pray to figure that out. Because guess what? Just because you've done this wonderful thing to honor God and want to grow your faith and your relationship with God, it doesn't mean that God is going to say, I'm so excited you want to grow closer to me. I'm going to give you a bonus 30 minutes every day. Your day is going to stretch to 24 hours and 30 minutes. It doesn't work that way. Your life is full and scheduled, so you've got to figure out where, where's that time going to come from. Decide what is going to be given up to make this the priority. Decide to show up for, for Bible study on Wednesday. Decide that your sisters in Christ around the table need you and you need them. You are part of a, a body, that little small group, and they need to hear what, you, what God has revealed to you, and you need to hear what God has revealed to them. So when you call to schedule your mammogram or your hair appointment or your dental cleaning and the receptionist says, oh, I have something on Wednesday the 23rd at 9.30, you respond, oh, I can't make that. I'm committed to a Bible study on Wednesday morning. And so with your mouth, you have declared out loud your commitment to the word of God. And who knows, you may have even planted a seed in the heart and mind of that receptionist that confirms where God has been working in her heart to get her back into the word of God. Who knows? So anyway, the first one, decide to make it a priority. Number two is to come first. Adopt a first things first mindset when it comes to the word of God. Going to God first, opening his word ensures not only that it's the priority of your day, but it also means it's going to impact everything else that happens throughout your day. Now, I know some of you will tell me you're night people, and I get that, but I just think there's, it, it's just great to do it first thing in the morning. You know that commercial that says, wow, I could have had a V8? I don't want you to come to the end of the day and say, wow, I could have used this in that conversation this afternoon. If you get it first, it's there, and sometimes you even get a heads up for what's coming in the course of your day. You can think about it. Let it sort of marinate and simmer in your mind all day long. I love what David wrote in Psalm 1918. In the morning, O oh Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. Ladies, go to the word first. Make Jesus the priority. Make him as my daughter used to say, your bae. You're before anything else. Go to him first. Some of you have been here before have heard me say, get your face in his book before you have your face in Facebook or anywhere else on social media or listening to Good Morning America or the Today Show or the, the newspaper or whatever it is that you go to. Before all that other starts to, to come in, go here first. Make that the priority. Get up a little early. Get up a little bit and, and make that. Come in the morning. Come every morning. And coming to him daily 
Now, I, I know how some of you work. It gets to be Tuesday, and you think, oh, I got Bible study tomorrow. And you try to plow through all those days of study in one day, and that'll get it done. But you've missed out on the blessing of sort of digesting it out through the week. Daily feeding trumps once per week gorging when it comes to the bountiful table that the Lord has for us. None of us look at our planner for the week and see all this filled in appointments and no white space and think, wow, I'm just going to eat seven lunches today on Sunday so that I don't have to worry about lunch all week. <clears throat> An absurd example, I know. But we kind of do that. We, we ask our pastor to sort of spoon feed us one big sermon that's supposed to last us all week. We need to eat physically every day, and we need to eat spiritually every single day. So, so come first and come every day. And then as you come, come expectantly. Come expecting to find something there in the Word. Come expecting to dig out a treasure. Come expecting that God has something just for you. And come expecting to be changed. My prayer as we begin a study for myself and for all of you is always that we will be different women come next March than we are today. That we will be changed. That we will expect to be changed. And, and may we want God to mess with us a little bit. May we want God to mess with our relationships and our viewing habits, to mess with those grudges that we've held on to, or the unforgiveness that we've refused to release, or to, to mess with our budget, or a decision that we know we need to make and we've been postponing. It's going to be very practical. It's not just going to be academic. Expect God to want to change you and expect you and, and, and give him permission to do that. Make it your desire to want to be changed. We don't want this just to be an academic study where we, we soak up all this knowledge in our heads. We want to be changed, and that begins from the inside out. What God works in through his word, it's going to work out very naturally. And as God meets us in his word and his truth is revealed, our faith will grow. We, we no longer come, come to him out of obligation, but out of desire. We no longer want to listen or obey or show up or do something out of guilt, but the motivation is love. Yes. It, it completely changes everything. Some of what we do may look the same on the outside, but it's extraordinarily different because the inside has changed. Have to will become want to, and then it's going to become delight to. May we declare with the psalmist, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I hope you'll make that your prayer and your, your declaration. I delight in your decrees, Lord. I will not neglect your word. You might even make it your prayer. Lord, help me to delight in your decrees and help me not to neglect your word. And then number four is come prayerfully. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. We've talked about that already today. And pray as you open the word. Pray God's word back to him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes and I may see wonderful things in your law. You know, you might write this inside your book. You might put it on a post-it note to remind you of what, what that says. And when you open up your Bible study each week, there it is. There's a typo on the screen. That should be in Psalm 119, not 19. This can be a declaration of faith that you believe there's something there. Lord, open my eyes that I can see it because I know it's there. So you're, you're declaring by faith that it is. And it's also a, a prayer for focus, that you don't miss it, that you find it, you keep digging until you find out what it is. What is that blessing that God has for you? Keep in mind as you study the Word of God, 
that Scripture interprets Scripture. It may become tedious. It may become tiresome to keep looking up all those extra verses. We'll, we're running all over the Bible. When you do your lesson, there'll be verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're not only going to be in Romans as you do your lesson, but it's vital that we keep letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We yeah. keep looking up all those verses, and, and it protects us from pulling one little skinny isolated verse out of context. As, as we study, we're going to see truth revealed and truth confirmed. We're going to see these threads of truth that have been woven into the tapestry of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. We're going to realize that, that the New Testament and Jesus' coming wasn't plan B. It was God's plan all along. The truth is there. We're going to see that. Many New Testament passages are actually quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus himself quoted much scripture, and, in, and indeed he confirmed that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's been said, and you've probably heard, that the Old Testament is the New Testament prophesied, and the New Testament is the Old Testament fulfilled. We're going to see that confirmed more and more as we study the scriptures. So don't become weary or frustrated in looking up all those verses. You are exercising and growing your faith muscles. And because you've put in the work, you are more likely going to remember and retain much more of it than if you were just given the answer or just Googled it or asked Alexa to tell you what to write down. So do the work and reap the benefits. You know, we received... Um, an old set of encyclopedias from my in-laws when my kids were little. And they were heavy, and they had, you know, had that musty smell of wisdom. Some of you remember the days that, that you actually had a set of encyclopedias at home. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But they, they were just pretty, the, the way they were bound and the lettering, and they looked just so stately on our bookshelves. And, you know, in, in the when the house got more and more full with each kid added, and we added more and more books, I was tempted just to cast those things off because... My in-laws had had them when my husband was a little boy in elementary school, and I thought, oh, they're just outdated. I should just get rid of them, but I kept them. And you know what? Much of what was in those encyclopedias never became outdated. When my five-year-old Kyle asked, well, how, how long is a giraffe's neck? And, of course, there was no Internet to look that up necessarily then. I said, well, let's look it up. And even that became teachable. So I said, giraffe, what, what letter does that start with, Kyle? And he said, J? And I said, no. And then that was a chance to say, well, the G sound can go J or G. So you got a little phonics lesson put in there as well. So then we, we found the G and we looked up a giraffe. And we, we found that and, and got the answer. In case it's six feet, a giraffe's neck is six feet long. And by the way, its legs are six foot long too. Um, but the point is that... There's some truth that's timeless, you know, and God's word is always going to be timeless. Sometimes we think we have to run to new ideas or get enlightened with new things. God's word is always going to remain true. And if you look it up with your kids, it's always fun to play the less stuff dad game at dinner and say, Daddy, do you know how long a giraffe's neck is? And that was always kind of a, a, a fun thing to do as well. That's just a little bonus for you mommies. Um, Isaiah 48 says this, The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God stands forever. In a, the, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year time period, dozens of authors, but one supreme author, and that's God, God Almighty. Ladies, God's word is truth. It will never become outdated. The world may become, oh, so very progressive. The world and the culture may consider itself so very enlightened. New ideas, fresh concept. We need to throw off the old ways, the old ways of thinking and doing. But truth... It's truth. And God's word is truth, 
and God's word stands forever. If we want to know the truth, and if certainly we hope to defend the truth, we have to immerse ourselves in scripture. And you are here, I believe, because that is your desire. Number six, allow some time to think and wrestle and meditate. You know, we live in a world of microwave ovens and drive through windows and FaceTime and Google and Alexa and all these things. We can get food immediately. We can have somebody even bring it to our door. You can get on your phone and 30 minutes later have exactly what you want to eat right there. Uh, we can see a friend face to face and talk to her through a screen, even though she lives halfway around the world with the push of a button. We can get answers to any question through the information superhighway. We do have a push a button. We can just give a voice command. It's amazing. Modern technology comes with many, many blessings and benefits, but it can also make us a little lazy. We don't want to wait. We don't want to think. We don't want to pray. We just want to be told. So I'm asking you to resist looking at the footnote or going to Google or just to get that answer quickly, allow some time to think about it, to wrestle, to meditate. One of the ladies in the group I sat on, on this morning said that in her years of doing Bible study, sometimes there would be a question that she just didn't answer that day. She knew she needed to think about it a little bit. So instead of saying, well, I'll just look at the footnote answer, she would wait and just go on to the next day's questions. And that one would continue to sort of be there in the back of her mind. And eventually, two or three days later, she may come back and answer that question. That's totally okay. Receive that. Psalm 119.15 says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I hope that that's what you find yourself doing, meditating on his precepts. Number seven, allow God's voice to drown out the other voices. You know, there are so many sources, so many voices vying for our attention. Social media, talking heads, political parties, YouTube videos, movie actors, entertainers, sports figures, corporate leaders. Many want to leverage their popularity to influence what we think and what we believe and what they want us to share on Facebook. You know, Samuel, and we studied Samuel last year, if you were here with us for our study on David's life in First and Second Samuel, he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, prophets and priests of the Old Testament. His mother dedicated him to the Lord from birth and, and even before birth, <clears throat> when he was still in the womb. Well, when God called to him and said, Samuel, Samuel, this is how Samuel responded. Speak, for your servant is listening. And I pray that each of us would respond the same way, that when we approach the word of God and we feel God's word speaking to us, we would have that teachable spirit, that we would want to hear what God has to say to us through his word. It may not be an audible voice. It probably won't. But his word will speak to us. Before we listen or heed any other voice, may we hear his voice. And may what he says take priority over what every other voice wants to tell us to think or to say or to do. I love what my pastor said recently in his sermon from 1 Peter when he was teaching about false prophets. He said this, we've got to make an intentional effort to let the word of God be the loudest voice in our lives. We've got to make that intentional effort. Is God's voice the loudest voice in your life? Would you choose to make it the loudest voice going forward? The authority of Scripture should, should be, that should be the absolute authority for every single thing that we believe, for every single position that we hold. Can we back it up with truth of Scripture? Is that what's dictating what we think and the position that we hold? Number eight is to know your why. And the why that we study the Word of God 
is to know God better. That's the reason we study scripture, to know God better. In Romans, we're going to see that God is great. We've talked about that already today, that he's holy and righteous, but he's also good. He's loving and merciful and compassionate. God is great and God is good. And we're going to settle that in a deeper, more profound, wider way as we study through Romans. We're going to, and knowing who he is is going to better equip us to worship him. The Bible is not just a self-help book. It's not just to make you feel better. It's not just to tell you what to do. It may do all of those things. But the primary reason to study the word of God is to know God. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that we were created for his glory. That's the reason for your, your existence. You were created for him. And if we fail to fulfill that purpose for our existence, I think we're, gonna, we're never going to find real satisfaction. I think it's why people are frustrated and looking for the next thing because they're not fulfilling their purpose. You were created to bring him glory. And there's going to be what Pascal called that God-shaped vacuum inside of all of us. So until you're worshiping and serving God and wholeheartedly committed to him, real satisfaction and real contentment and real peace and real joy will always elude you. And as our lives begin to be oriented to worship God, let's keep in mind that we will be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You've heard, probably read this verse in John 4.24 where Jesus tells us that God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And as I read that, it, it makes me consider that we worship God both with our emotions and with our minds. And perhaps it's with our emotions that we love to declare his love and his mercy. And it's with our minds academically where we embrace his righteousness and his justice and his power. The study of God's word becomes worship. And the singing of praise to God becomes worship. It's all worship. When we worship with our minds and our hearts as well. And Jesus taught us that he's spirit. And so let's keep that in mind. That this, what we're doing as we study the word of God, it's worship. Worship isn't just singing those praises to God. This is also worship. Worshiping of God and making much of him. And then number 10 is expect an assignment. God's word will prompt us to live out, to walk out what we are learning. It's going to change what we think and say and believe. It's going to revise perhaps our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors. And I want you to expect it to. I want to challenge you to want it to and to ask for it to. To finish your lesson and say, so what? God, what is my assignment? What's my takeaway? Knowing this now, how do you want me to walk this out? And as women of God who are committed to growing our faith, we need to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of it. Because Jesus himself challenges us. James challenges us. The brother of Jesus wrote in James 1.25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Obedience brings blessing. It may come in surprising and even mysterious ways, sometimes not a change in your circumstances at all on the outside. But for you and me, it might bring that change on the inside, profound change. And that sometimes that's the biggest blessing of all. Are you ready to grow your faith? Are you ready to lean into the obedience that's fueled by faith, to embrace righteousness by faith as we study through the book of Romans? Now back to our little art history lesson. You probably didn't expect to get a, an art history or art appreciation lesson as you studied when you signed up for Romans, but we'll just call this another little bonus. Here's another interesting piece of trivia regarding this painting by Rembrandt. By the way, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee is the only known seascape painted by Rembrandt. 
And you'll notice here the little circled face. When Rembrandt painted this, he couldn't resist painting himself into the piece as one of the disciples. Yes, that's himself right there. He just had to put himself in the picture. And my first thought when I read that is, what hubris, what pride. You know, and if, if you were a British person, you might say, how cheeky. And, and, and as followers of Christ, knowing that this is a biblical account, we might even say, well, that's irreverent. But then as I thought about it, ladies, I thought, well, you know, maybe Rembrandt was doing what every one of us needs to do as we study Romans or every other passage in the Word of God. We need to put ourselves into the picture. We need to not just read it from the outside. We need to put ourselves into it. We need to not just be casual observers or, or critics who, who sip our cappuccino or our Diet Coke or our coffee as we see what's going on, but allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and convict us and challenge us and encourage us not just to know it, but to own it and to live it. And by the way, one more little piece of trivia about this painting. Don't bother Googling where you can go find it and see it in person uh, because it was one of 13 pieces that, by the way, are currently valued at $500 million that were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in March of 1990. And to this date, that still remains an unsolved crime. More than 30 years later, it is still the largest art theft, not only the largest art theft, but also the single largest theft of private property in recorded history. But ladies, even art that's worth $500 million will not withstand the fire at the end of the age. I doubt that anything you and I have in our homes would even come close to being a fraction of the value of this work of art. But what we do have is priceless. The blessed assurance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. The good news that that God-man Jesus Christ provided for us. We are saved by grace through faith. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We are saved through faith. But then he goes on in verse 10 and says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved us by grace through faith, and then he called us to the obedience that comes through faith. If we have faith and active faith, we can weather any storm, COVID or otherwise, and do it all for the glory of our very great and very good God. Would you pray with me? God Almighty, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you that we live in an age where, and in a country where we have the freedom to own our own Bibles, that as women we've been taught to read. Forgive us, Lord, for our prayerlessness, the days that we've left your, your, the Word of God closed. I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst, an insatiable appetite for your word as we study through Romans. Lord, it's a tough book, a tough of great theology, but yet simple truth as well. Help us to digest it, to understand it, to pray through. Holy Spirit, as we open your word, would you reveal the wonderful truth that is here? Let us know it and own it and give us that desire to live it all for your glory all for your name's sake. In the sweet, precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Ladies, have a blessed week.